We've been on a series called The Two-Minute Warning. And I know that there are times in, in a game, any, any type of game, you don't play with the same intensity the whole game. There are times that you make decisions, you do different things in the last few minutes that you may not do at the beginning. And I think it's the same way in life. There are times we go a little harder, a little extra. We, we make different calls. We do different things at certain times, knowing that that's very important, that it could change the course of our life if we make a bad decision at a certain time. Um, and I've heard this with athletes as well. The worst feeling in the world as an athlete is not just losing. I mean, it's one thing to go into a game and to compete and to try your best, to do your best, the best that you have. And if the other team is just a better team and they win a good battle, there's something about that that you can walk off the field with your head high and be okay um, with that. But there's something that's worse, and that is beating yourself. It's that idea that you go in and you don't play the best you can. And if you lose in that situation and you know that you were the better team, just not that day, losing because of your own bad decisions is very hard to do. And sometimes it's the last few minutes. It's those times in your life or in the game where you've made such a bad mistake, it's hard to overcome. So I've heard it from coaches before, the last few minutes of of any game, um, to do the right thing, to play smart. Give yourself a chance to win. These are sayings that coaches would use, right? Don't defeat yourself in this. Um, Don't give the game away to them. And no penalties, right? This is a time period where there's no penalties, no bad decisions right now. And I I know this about you guys. I don't know all of you that are here today, but I, I know something about all of you. And it's this, that every bad decision that you've ever made in your life you were a part of that bad decision. Uh, You can't escape yourself sometimes. You were a part of that. Now, there are bad things that may have happened in your life to you, but if it was a bad decision that you've made, you have been a part of that. And one bad decision can lead to a lifetime of bad decisions, and we end up defeating ourselves in this. And we got to figure out a way to do the right thing. But the question then is, what's the right thing? What's the right thing to do? Is it different for all of us, or what is the right thing? Now, Jesus doesn't use these terms specifically. Jesus doesn't have a list of rules that that necessarily he goes by. Here's your list of rules to follow. Jesus brings us a new covenant. He brings us in the New Testament. It's different than some of the lists of rules that we have with the Old Covenant. Um, It's simpler, but yet harder all at the same time. It's less complicated, but yet it's more demanding for us as we do this. And it's not about rules. It's about honoring one another. It's about how we treat each other. And here's the principle that Jesus taught. And he, he teaches this throughout. This is his life of teaching. This is what he shows. This is what he does. And it's this big picture. Love God and love each other. Now, there is some specific scripture with this, but this is throughout his teaching. We see this principle, love God and love each other. And it's not two commandments. This is one. You can't have one of these without the other. Loving each other is loving God, and loving God means to love each other. It's one commandment that's here that's in this. So I break it down like this. Maybe this is better for you to understand. Um, Treat other people the way you're treated when you go to Chick-fil-A, and I think we're all good. (laughs) Everything will be good if we can understand that. Jesus didn't say it that way, but I think we can understand it that way. Now, not everyone is going to be your friend 
And here's the hard part with this. It's hard. It's really hard to love everyone. Not many of us get through life without collecting an enemy or two along the way. Yeah, I get it. You try your best um, to get along with everybody, but some people just won't cooperate, and it's hard. There's misunderstandings, there's miscommunications, there's bad, bad blood that puts us at odds with others. Some people just plain don't like you. It's, and that's hard to hear, right? And, and it's tough. Um, and they, they might never like you. And here's the tough part. You might not be too crazy about them either. So somehow we've got to figure this out. Uh, Charles Swindoll, he said it this way one time. Friends come and go, but enemies accumulate. <laughs> If you've seen this, friends, they, you collect some of those and you can move away at different times. I heard about a reporter. He was doing an interview with a man that had turned 100 years old. This guy lived to be 100 years old, and, and he was asked the question, what are you most proud of? Like, what's an accomplishment in your life that you're proud of? And this old man thought for a little bit, and he said, well, I don't have any enemies in life. And the reporter thought, no, that's that's pretty amazing. That's a great achievement. What's your secret to not having any enemies? And he said, well, I've outlived them all. <laughs> There's one way to do it. All right. That's not our lesson for today. Um, but our goal is to do the right thing, which means love each other. Do the right thing by loving each other. Now, where we're going with this is not in the New Testament. Even though I think this is a principle that is a principle of God, it goes throughout. We're going to jump to the Old Testament. I want to tell you a story of King David during a time period where he did the right thing. Now, I believe in this. Um, he had, in this story, he had the opportunity to blow it. Man, he could, have, he could have made the other decision, and he probably would have been okay. I think he could have justified his way out of it, and he could have made it work, but yet he had to make a choice to do the right thing. So before I jump there, let me give you some background. Okay, King Saul was the first king of Israel. This is back in the Old Testament time period. He's the first king of Israel. David has been anointed to be the next king. So when King Saul dies, David is going to take his place. And the high priest Samuel has already anointed him. David then was hired by the king to do different jobs. One of those jobs was, was to entertain him. He'd come in and he would sing. He'd play music. The other was to fight for him. He was also a warrior. So David took on his first big challenge was a guy by the name of Goliath. This is how David... David makes his scene or makes his way onto the scene. He kills Goliath and he wins. And this is how we get to know David first. And um, during this time period, though, Saul gets really jealous of David. And it's easy to understand why. Here's the setting king. The new king's already been in place. And whatever Saul gave David to do, he did it well. Whether that's entertaining or whether that's leading his army, whether that's fighting, every time he sent him into battle, he would not only win, he would, he would win well. He would do good at that. Um, David even married one of Saul's daughters. He became the son-in-law of King Saul. And Saul was always trying to get rid of him. Even one time Saul came to his son Jonathan and to his daughter, the, the wife of David, and tried to get their help in killing David. He thought this was the best way. Instead of my son-in-law becoming king because he's making me jealous of everything, I'd rather my son become king. But they didn't take him up on it, and they protected David and helped him escape. More than a few times Saul has tried to kill David. 
He, he was determined to do this. And David actually escaped and he became an outlaw in Israel. So he is on the run for his life from the king of Israel, and he's in the hills and the deserts of Israel trying to save his life. And while he's out there, he comes across a group of men who are also probably outlaws, living in the hills, living in the desert, and these become David's mighty men. If you read through Samuel, First and Second Samuel, you can read stories about these guys. They were tough dudes, smart military guys, and David has collected a group of mighty men around him while he's on the run for his life, and Saul keeps chasing him. So Saul and David finally come face to face again, and this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's one of my favorite. Okay, I, there's Christmas and Easter. Those are pretty good as well as a pastor. But this is one of my favorites. And I promise you, if you were a bunch of junior high boys, this story would come out differently. I would probably say inappropriate things as I'm going along. But I'm going to try and resist some of those um, today. And you'll catch on of why I'm saying this as well. So let's hear the story. Saul has heard that David is nearby and he's chasing after him. Okay, 1 Samuel chapter 24. If you have your Bibles, um, turn there. 1 Samuel 24. If you have your phones, get your phones open, your Bible apps um, on, and follow along with this. 1 Samuel 24. David and his army are on the run from Saul. Saul had put out some spies to look for him, and they find out that David is close by with his men, and they're near in the desert of En Gedi, which is between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea, in Israel. So here we go. First Samuel 24 verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel, and he went to seek David and his men. Now get this picture, and this is what I want to do today. I just want to paint this scene for you as we walk along. I want you to try and capture this in your mind to, to understand this. Saul took 3,000, not just ordinary dudes. It says 3,000 chosen men. So I'm sure he selected the best of the best. 3,000 warriors. And 3,000 was a big unit. It was really three units. They would have gone out probably 1,000 at a time, but he pulled three of them together to go find and hunt down one guy. It's a little overdone, in my opinion. Um, did he really need that many to do this? But, but he did. Now, understand it this way. You take 3,000 men, and you're going out on a journey to seek after and find someone. They're not gone for just a few hours. These guys didn't say to their spouses, see you later, or see you at dinner time. You know, they're not gone for just an afternoon. They're going to be gone for a while. So they're going to be gone you know, days, if not weeks, if not months. And when they do that, there's logistics that are part of this. They've got to take with them food and water. And when 3,000 men eat and drink, they probably needed to take along a porta potty as well. Right? That's what happens when we eat. But I don't think they carried along any porta potties. They had to make do with what they had out in the open. So um, here we go, verse 3. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not, you know, uh, that well-versed so much in the Bible that I know everything about it, but I'm pretty sure that this is the only place in Scripture <laughs> where we get the reference that somebody used the bathroom, all right? I don't know. There might be a place, Deuteronomy might be one that comes to mind. 
Sorry, that was, that was a junior high joke. Uh, my, my inner junior high boy is coming out. You, you can feel it. That, I'll stop. That'll be it. So c- capture the scene, all right? Do you get this? Um, for most of the guys, almost all the guys on this journey, these 3,000 men, if they had to use the restroom, they had to fend for themselves. They just stop. You, we're not stopping. You just figure it out, right? It's like family trips. We're not stopping at every rest stop along the way just because someone has to stop. We're going to keep going. We've got stops. We've got to get somewhere. And they keep moving. But if you're the king, you get special service. And the king says, hey, this is my favorite rest stop. <laughs> the one right up here, this cave. This is my favorite one. So he wants to stop. So he stops and gets down off of his horse or his donkey, whatever. He's riding his chariot. And he grabs a newspaper, tucks it under his arm, says, boys, I'll be right back. Right? And give me a minute. And he goes off to the cave. This is the best part. Verse 3. If you haven't read ahead yet, um, verse 3. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. What are the odds? There are none (laughs) for this. I mean, capture this as well. And, And get this here. David had some men spying, looking out. And 3,000 men walking out to find him. They're not probably very quiet. So they saw them coming from a distance. And they said, we need to hide. They're coming into the area that we're in. Let's go and hide. Here's a cave that we can hide in. So they make their way to the back of the cave, wait for the caravan to pass, and then they'll come out and they'll escape. So they're hanging out in the back of the cave. And you get how this happens. If you walk into a dark room from the sunlight, if you've been out in the sunlight and you walk into a dark room, you can't see anything, right? It's dark. But David's men have been hiding in the back of the cave, at least for a little while now. Their eyes have adjusted And they can probably see a little bit of what's going on. And what they see as they look to the mouth of the cave where the light is coming in and the opening is a silhouette of a man walking in and they all know who it is. It's King Saul. And I'm guessing that they start giggling like a bunch of girls. Maybe, I don't know. I'm just guessing at this saying, I can't believe it. This is an answer to our prayers. You know, shh, be quiet, he's going to hear us. The stars have lined up. God has delivered King Saul into our hands. This is amazing. They can't believe it. What would be going through your mind if this happened? If you were one of David's men, if you were David, to me, this is one of those things you don't have to pray about. You ever have those times in your life you're like, I don't need to pray about this. I know the right decision. This is the God thing. I don't even have to think about it. I understand what God is doing and what he's done here, and I'm just going to go and do this. I don't even have to pray about it. God has delivered Saul into our hands. David's already the anointed king um, of Israel, and this is an easy decision. Verse 4 And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Now I wonder how many times David has said to his men, maybe sitting around the campfires or on the go, maybe as they're traveling along, I wonder how many times David has said, Guys, just hang on a little bit longer. Just hold on, it's not going to be long now. I'm going to be the king of Israel, and I'm taking you with me. I'll promote you. You'll be well rewarded. You'll be the leaders in my army. 
And so David's guys are probably encouraged. They're probably sent back there thinking, today's the day. We're going to the kingdom after this. This is our day. This is going to be it. So let's play this scenario out, okay? Let's say that this is what happens. Saul says to his caravan, let's stop. I have to relieve myself. So he grabs his newspaper. He walks into the um, cave. And a few minutes later, David walks out carrying the head of Saul. What would that look like, right? What would happen then? I believe that everyone would recognize David as king. All 3,000 men would, would look at David and say, there's our next king. Our, our king has been killed, and David has already been anointed, plus he just killed our king. He's our new king. No civil war, very little bloodshed. Uh, many lives would have been spared. I believe David could have justified that action. So can you imagine the adrenaline that's going on in David and his men? The emotions that are happening inside of that cave? This has to be God's will. God's already set this up. I believe this was a two-minute warning type decision for David. What is he going to do in this? When the stakes are the highest, this could affect the rest of his life. This would be setting up his kingdom and how he was going to rule. But he knew he had to do the right thing. He knew he couldn't defeat himself in this situation. He knew that this was setting him up. And even though it's a principle that Jesus taught in the New Testament, I think it's a principle of God throughout history. Love God and love each other. Romans chapter 12, verse 18. I've used this a lot in counseling sessions and probably because I use it a lot on myself. Um, and this is something I need to keep hearing over and over. If possible, as far as it depends on you, that's the hard part, live peaceably with all. As far as it depends on you, now, this is a teaching of Jesus. Jesus, um, when he was walking around, he, he showed us this. He taught us this over and over and over. One time in Luke, he unpacked it. Luke chapter 6, um, he says, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Everybody said, what? He said, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Jesus said it this way. He tried to explain it like this. Loving people that love you that's easy. Even evil people do that. It's easy to love people that love you back. But what I'm going to tell you is love people that don't love you. Love your enemies. Do good to them. That was a tough teaching. And Paul comes in and he repeats it. He expands on it. He makes it, he takes further Romans 12, where this verse comes from. At the top in my um, Bible that I was reading, at the top of the section of this, it says, marks of the true Christian. And then it says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with everyone. Don't repay evil with evil. Do what is honorable. As long as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't avenge yourselves. Leave that up to God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. 
If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. This is how they're going to know that we love God. This is how they're going to know who we are. This is the marks of a true Christian, right? It actually says here, when you do this, it will heap burning coals on their head. Meaning, your character played out the right way when you do the right thing, it will cause you to win in the end. This is what we should do. So verse 4, let's get back to the story. So David arose stealthily, it says. It's like a ninja coming from the back of the cave to the front of the cave. And somehow, some way, somewhere between the back of the cave and the front of the cave, he refrained from murdering King Saul. I don't know what was going through his mind. I don't know what he was saying to himself, but somewhere along the way, he knew this principle of God. And I believe he, he stopped me and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I can't murder the king. This is a king. This is not the plan for me to become the next king, to murder the king. That's not what is set up. I cannot replace what God has put in place. This is not the way I'm going to become the king. I mean, seriously, he might have been thinking, what would my story be like then? What song would they write about me? I like the song they wrote about me with Goliath. That was a pretty good song. You know, I like it when they sing that song about me killing Goliath. That was pretty cool. But what about this one? What, how are they going to turn this one into a song? And what about my grandkids? What story are they going to hear? And what will they say? Granddad, tell us that story again about how you became the king and Saul was in the cave and you snuck up behind him and you, you killed him while he was going potty. Can you tell us that one again? Um, that was cool. I, I'm sure that he was running through all of this saying, what is going on here? And it actually says in the NIV, um, it says he was conscious stricken. He was able to do the right thing. Not to defeat himself. Not to set up his kingdom in a negative way. You see, God doesn't contradict himself. And David knows this. God doesn't set up a principle for us to follow and then ask you to do something that goes against the principle that he has set up and wants us to follow. Saul is the current king. God had appointed him, and he is still in the office of king. And David knew he couldn't do it. So this is what he does. He sneaks up behind King Saul, and he cuts off a portion of his robe. So he's got this long flowing robe, and he cuts off just a portion of that I'm sure the guys in the back are are laughing um, as quietly as they can, watching this play out. But yet they're confused at the same time. What just happened? So David comes back to them and he says to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David's mighty men said, all right, fine, we'll do it. (laughs) If you're not going to do it, we'll stand up for you. We'll go kill King Saul, and then we'll move on to the kingdom. Let's go. Verse 7, David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up, left the cave, and went on his way. Wow, that was close. It was close for King Saul. He almost lost his life and didn't even know it. It was close for David. He almost blew the opportunity to do the right thing. 
So are you close? Where are you at today? Are you somewhere between the back of the cave and the front of the cave? Is there an opportunity in front of you where you have to make a decision of what you're going to do, how you're going to treat somebody else? Maybe you've been lied about or cheated on, and maybe you want to do more than just survive. You want to make them suffer, whoever they are. Do you have an enemy that you would love to retaliate against? You would love to humiliate, and and you could with just a single email. Are you considering an action that you can justify? In fact, you've justified it three different ways. Are you considering a bad behavior because of somebody else's bad behavior? And remember, you don't have to justify yourself if you just do the right thing. So if you're trying to justify it, maybe you need to think about it a little longer. So think about it. I'm going to ask you this morning just just to stop long enough to make the right decision. Based on the truth of the standards of what Jesus has taught us, the principles that he teaches, can you do the right thing and, and let character and let truth play out? Because I see it here. If there was ever a person who had the right to oppose the authority over him, it was David. David had been totally loyal to Saul. He had sang for him, he ministered to him, he fought for him, he risked his life for him. And what a horrible injustice it had been for Saul to try and kill David. Saul had used his position and his authority to make David's life miserable. And God had already rejected Saul as the king of Israel. But the wheels of injustice grind slowly sometimes with God. And Saul was still in office. Well, Saul gets done. He walks out of the cave, not knowing that his life was in danger inside of the cave. And David's men, they can't wait to get out. Probably for more reasons than one. But here they are. Picture the scene. I mean, get it. Here is Saul walking out of the cave. He goes to get back on his donkey or his horse, whatever he's riding. And David follows. David comes out right behind Saul, and everyone can hear him. They all turn to see David and his mighty men flanked beside him on either side. And David addresses Saul as the king, and then he bows down to him. Not in worship, but in respect. You know, in the military, when a soldier salutes an officer, he doesn't first analyze the officer's personality or his character traits or decisions that he's made in the past that he might agree or disagree with. He salutes him because of rank. That's all you have to know. And David bows to the ground before King Saul, not in worship, but in humility. And he wants Saul to see that he respects his authority as God's anointed king, and he has no desire to fight against him. But when he rises, he holds up the corner of Saul's robe. And in that moment, the truth comes out. And David doesn't have to defend himself at all. Everyone there, 3,000 plus men, they knew who the better man was because he did the right thing. He didn't defeat himself. He let the truth prevail. And when that happens 
And when the truth comes out, you will be better for it. Now, David gives a little speech. I'm not going to read that speech to you, it's there, but in verse 12, this is how he ends his speech. It says, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between you and me and see to it and plead my case and deliver me from your hand. Think of the situation that's here. Saul had an evil heart and God had already rejected him as king. He just wasn't out of the office yet. And the way Saul was treating David was totally uncalled for. It was unjust. There was little in Saul to respect. He was not a man of integrity. He was not a man of his word. He was selfish, backstabbing, and a controlling person. That's not what David was submitting to. What David was submitting to was God and the principle that God puts before us which is to love each other. So all eyes turn to Saul. And he's confused, he's angry, he's frustrated, probably a little embarrassed. He's humiliated by David, not at his skill level or his strength, but by his character and his self-control. And this is the power of the truth of doing the right thing. Now, God did deliver David from Saul's harassments, but only after he was finished using Saul to develop David as the future compassionate king of Israel. Listen to this. David did not become the great king of Israel in spite of King Saul. He became a wise, capable person in authority because of King Saul, because he learned how to live this way. David defeated his enemy not through murder, but through mercy. So for you, what about that as well? Who is it for you today that you need to show your true character to? Who is it that maybe God has placed on your heart as I've been talking that you're thinking, I need, I need to show them the true love of God. This is who he's called us to be and to show them mercy. If you would, let's stand together and let's prepare our hearts to remember a time where God gave us mercy when we didn't deserve it through his son, Jesus. Let's stand and sing.